I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I travel to Tulsa, Oklahoma as Good Faith Media visits uh, Tulsa to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And then later on the pod, Autumn and I sat down with Reverend Elizabeth Hagen to talk about her new book, Brave Church. So you want to stay tuned for that interview because Reverend Hagen was a delight to visit with. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of a new podcast, The Raceless Gospel from Good Faith Media. We're going to talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Season one of The Raceless Gospel has five episodes, five Sundays, if you will. We're going to take you to church each episode. We're going to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship through the structure of a church service. And each episode, we're joined by a special guest who will bring a word. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, five episodes, all available March 22nd. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we march into and beyond race, religion, and politics. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, we've been on the road. In fact, uh, I'm still on the road uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma this week. We have been. It was incredible. I um, only came up for a little portion of the week that you all have spent there in Tulsa covering so much ground and so many important topics. But um, let's I mean, I think you should probably tell people what's going on in Tulsa, because some people probably don't know, and that's probably not even their fault. Right. Well, hopefully, as our audience may or may not know, uh, May 31st to June 1st was the 100th anniversary uh, that commemorated the Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, For a long time, it was called the Tulsa Race Riot, but that was negative connotations and inaccurate in its description. The reality was that uh, that this was a massacre, uh, and over 300 people lost their lives due to blatant racism that was fueled by the media and by a culture that wanted to suppress uh, the Black community in Tulsa. And it was just, uh, it was really a moving week, uh, to say the least. Uh, we attended church services. We attended uh, a prayer vigil, a dedication of a prayer wall at Vernon. Uh, AME Church uh, that was burned to the ground back in 1921. Uh, a lot of dignitaries uh, came in and out of Tulsa. President Biden uh, was here uh, giving remarks to uh, the three survivors as well as uh, community leaders. Uh, it was just really a, a remarkable week. And I just, I learned so much. Now, what was heartbreaking for me as someone who grew up in Tulsa, uh, Grew up on the east side of Tulsa, graduated, uh, ended up graduating on the south side of Tulsa, but attended Tulsa Public Schools and Union Public Schools all my life. I never learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre until I was an adult, and I was absolutely astonished. Um, those those was, places where we were, like you grew up driving right by them and just yeah. had no idea that you were in a sacred space. Yeah, no clue whatsoever. Just no clues whatsoever. And it infuriated me. It also broke my heart, depending on who you're talking to, because African-Americans in Tulsa 
felt like they could never talk about what happened because they were fearful for their life. Yep. Uh, I mean, you heard stories of, you know, children watching their parents and aunts and uncles getting shot right in front of them. Um, and then the, the ramifications after the massacre took 18 hours to burn 12 miles of the city. Uh, the economic devastation was just insurmountable. And so the African-American community felt like they could never talk about this because of the consequences that they would face by even bringing it up. And then, of course, you had the, the white community here in Tulsa. Which obviously, Tulsa is predominantly white. Uh, just wanted to bury it. And the, the symbolism of discovering the remains at Oakland Cemetery there in Tulsa, where you know they basically had a mass grave where they just dumped bodies in, um, is telling because it was almost as though it was the perfect metaphor, and it wasn't even a metaphor, is real, of covering up history. Mm-hmm. Uh, bury it deep into the ground, and let's just never talk about it again. Yeah. And so the fact now that we're talking about it, we're coming to some understanding of, of not only what happened in those 18 horrific hours on May 31st, uh, 2000, or, uh, 1921, and then what has happened afterward, uh, you know, we've got a long way to go. And there, there needs to be a lot of answers uh, to a lot of questions that are being posed, and there needs to be justice. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's yet to be a government, whether that is the city of Tulsa, the state of Oklahoma or the United States have ever officially acknowledged what took place there as a crime. I think uh, we've all had, three of them need to answer for that. All right. three. We've had certain uh, politicians such as, you know, mayors, governors and the president acknowledge what has happened. Uh, that's a step forward. But there has never been. This was this was a crime. This is a crime scene for twelve blocks. This was a crime scene. Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrorist act. It's a domestic terrorist attack, and there's been no justice. There's been no uh, any attempt to bring about justice to the victims that took place, the generational victims that took place, as well as the community itself. And the thing that was telling for me is that it, people lost their life on that day, and but not only that. An entire generation, because Black Wall Street there at Greenwood was a thriving community, and it wasn't just one street. You go down to Greenwood right now, and you see it's just about a block. It was twelve miles of thriving industry uh, and neighborhoods. I mean, it was really the jewel of African Americans in the entire United States. It was really a remarkable place. And in 18 hours, it was completely destroyed. And then over the next 100 years, it was never allowed to be rebuilt because of policies instilled by the city of Tulsa, the state of Oklahoma, and the federal government. This continued to suppress generation after generation. And so generational economic development stopped in 1921 mm-hmm. and was never allowed to prosper again. And now today you hear politicians, you know, just saying, well, that happened a hundred years ago. Why should we, you know, answer for what happened a hundred years ago? Well, because your family, your community didn't suffer the way this community did. And it wasn't just 18 hours on two days in 21. It was the hundred years after the fact. 
and continues in today, the ramifications of that one event are still are still in effect today. And so there's yeah, and it's yeah, yeah, there's it's continuing. And I think that's one of the most haunting things is that you can still see the footprint. I mean, you can see grand lawns with stairs going up to nothing. You know, right. you can see the little pavers in the sidewalk of what business was there and whether or not it was rebuilt. And here's the thing. I found myself like I would go down three, not rebuilt, not rebuilt, not rebuilt. I'd see a paver that says rebuilt. But even with I would feel a little like spark of oh good for them. They were able to rebuild. But I'm like, I'm picturing it in my mind. And but to what end? You know, like who could come right. and spend money there because they had nothing. It was completely right. wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just been a really moving week for me. Uh, you know, and again, I, I when I found out about uh, 21, I I did research myself, but just being here on the ground, listening to community leaders, listening to the stories of survivors, descendants of survivors, has just once again rocked my world and has convinced mm-hmm. me that we have created a system here in the United States that is not only suppressive, but oppressive of people of color, especially African-American communities. And we've got to do better. And let me say this, probably the most paramount thing of the week is that white communities always want to rush to reconciliation. It's a lot of talk about reconciliation. We've got to bridge the gap between white and black or white and brown. But we've got a lot of hard work to do before we get to reconciliation. And that hard work is justice. And I'm going to throw a word out here that not very many people like, and that's reparations. Mm -hmm. Again, I go back to the fact that, yes, this happened 100 years ago over an 18-hour period. But the ramifications of that one moment have lasted a hundred years. The trauma You're still lasting. The trauma that's associated with that, the economic trauma that's associated with that has continued and no one has ever answered for that. And so I am becoming more and more convinced there needs to be some kind of legislation uh, in the United States for reparations. I don't know what that looks like, but I think it needs to be in place because we have done a disservice, especially to African-American communities uh, in the United States. And there needs to be justice done before we can get to reconciliation. And there need to be black voices at the the helm of those 100%. decisions. Yeah, we, we don't need a white knight. We don't need a white knight riding in to save us. We need to to ask people who have lived in those communities who have... Um, who've experienced and continue to experience racism and let them decide what that looks like, in my opinion. No, you're absolutely right. And one story, just a microcosm of that, we heard uh, there was a local uh, beauty salon owner that had a shop. Uh, Her salon was located on Greenwood uh, up until this year. Um, And she had a, a thriving business. Things were going well. She loved her location. She's in a historic district. Uh, lives in the neighborhood, and she noticed that uh, her landlords, who were predominantly white, as the 100th anniversary continued to get closer, uh, the rent started going up until this last year, it tripled. 
And there was no way for her. I mean, it just it cut her profit completely. And yeah. so she, she sued her landlord that you're exploiting the situation. You are price gouging me, uh, trying to profit off the backs of, of this massacre that took place a hundred years ago. And she lost in court and she had to move out. She was evicted and, and had to move out and she's at another location now, but it's just this, this, it just, it's really it's sick. Injury. Right. Right. And this, uh, I think what you said is so, so important from the standpoint, we don't need a white community telling us what the answers to the situation should be. We need uh, black leaders, we need the African-American community to tell us what, how, you know, how, how can we make America better for them? How can we you know, help them develop uh, you know, their you know, neighborhoods, you know, what education? Um, we need those voices and they are out there. And I, I've been hearing from those voices all week. I've just been inspired. I mean, just absolutely been inspired. Uh, listening yeah. to them so and it, but, uh, you know it, yeah, sort of, it, it sort of ties into our interview with elizabeth um, mm-hmm. that's coming up next her her book brave church talking through topics together um something that i feel like i've been learning since 2016 is to is to listen to black voices to listen to lgbtq voices to listen to immigrant voices to Muslim voices, to Palestinian voices, to whoever voices need to be, who have been silenced, we need to listen. And one voice that has been really silenced in in our church culture is the hurting. You know, we shush over them with a Jesus Band-Aid and it hasn't been discussed. And so um, even though the topic seems sort of disparate, I think there's a tie there. No, I completely agree. And so that's why I think you're going to really enjoy our visit uh, with Reverend Elizabeth Hagen and her New book that has just recently been released, Brave Church. Uh, man, it's been, it's been an incredible week, Autumn. Uh, ready to get back home, but boy, I wouldn't trade this uh, time uh, for anything. Uh, it's been really inspiring and heartbreaking, but also inspiring. So, so uh, stay tuned with uh, uh, Autumn and I as we sit down with Elizabeth Hagen. Discovering Wholeness is a new podcast from Good Faith Media for healing trauma, for unearthing self. because trauma is so pervasive in our communities, it comes into our spiritual spaces, our churches. Mm. And I'm wondering how trauma is expressed in religious communities. My experience of of sitting in the, the pain, the shame, and the terror at times with some of the people that I have um, sat with that have experienced that judgment, but to the degree of those kinds of really strong words like abomination and you're going to hell. And it's so heart-wrenching. I'm Kendall Rothis, an author, feminist theologian, ordained minister, and spiritual director. Join me and my colleagues, Kendra Frazier and Jillian Drader, as we gather each week to discuss trauma and spirituality to stay grounded as we heal ourselves and walk alongside those who are healing. Join us and learn more at goodfaithmedia.org.
Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this week's episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from South Georgia, Reverend Elizabeth Hagen. Elizabeth has been doing ministry for over 15 years as pastoring congregations all over the U.S. She most recently served at Palisades Community Church in Washington, D.C. She was ordained in the American Baptist tradition in 2006, but has been warmly welcomed in recent years by the Disciples of Christ, the United Church of Christ and the Presbyterian USA, as well as other sister denominations. If she was going to pick, though, what church she fit into the best, it would be in the African-American gospel service. Amen. Yes, same. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth is an author who believes in telling vulnerable stories. For eight years, she struggled with miscarriage, infertility, and adoption loss. She previously wrote about a book about her loss in a memoir called Birth. Her new book, Brave Church, Tackling Tough Topics Together, is an honest and revealing conversation about life's most difficult moments. And you can find her book at elizabethhagen.com forward slash brave church. She's also, on a personal note, married to Kevin. They are parents to one particular little girl and to other adopted kids all over the world through their foundation they started called Our Courageous Kids. Elizabeth, wow, you are incredibly busy, but Thank you so much, and welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. We're very glad that you're here, Elizabeth. So as everyone is aware, uh, we've been in a global pandemic for well over a year now. It seems like about 17 years to some of us. Absolutely. So much has, right? I mean, if you're trying to cage young children in your home, it has been eons. <laughs> yes. Uh, so much has changed over the course of this last year. People are reimagining their lives these days. How did the pandemic affect you and what life practices are you instilling in your life as a result? Well, I was actually just having this conversation with a friend recently. I, I was saying, you know, I think there's so many people that have done some amazing things during the, the shutdown and the pandemic. They've learned to bake bread or they've learned to crochet or they've had these really awesome spiritual disciplines that they never had. And I would say that my discipline through the pandemic has been survival because uh, it's an important one, right? You know, because yeah. I had a preschool kid at home um, who refused to go to Zoom preschool. I mean, who really wants to go to Zoom preschool that um, <laughs> I was trying to manage? We, um, you mentioned that I'm connected with a foundation called Our Courageous Kids. We had a student um, who was studying actually at Southwestern Oklahoma State, um, from Kenya. And she, um, we, we were her kind of go-to family for breaks. Well, she came home for spring break in 2000, you know, March, 2020 and didn't leave for a long time. So I gave the extra daughter. I also had my job at the church and I also was doing some social media work for the kids in need foundation based in Minnesota. So I was, some days I thought, how, how, how am I sleeping? How is this even possible? I just said, you know, my motto was we're doing the best we can. And is everyone taking baths and getting, <laughs> is eating? <laughs> and did I remember uh, to, you know, make sure there's groceries, then we're, you know, we're all doing okay. So I will just tell you a quick confession, dear listeners. Um, my children bathed way less during this time, but they're not out with other people. So we just, right. have learned, we don't require as much cleaning. I have a, a four-year-old. I think there's a period where she did not brush her hair for a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> Curly hair is really cute, but you know, like, yeah, I'm not going to fight you on the brushing the hair. No. <laughs> just going to keep going. 
That's great. Is there any, like during the pandemic, we've talked to other guests about this. Uh, obviously, this has been a very traumatic year for all of us. Uh, we've been cooped up uh, in our houses. Uh, and, and using your words, we've just really been trying to survive. Um, how would you say as a, a theologian, as a minister, uh, as a parent, uh, you know, how, how has the pandemic affected you and what changes have you seen over the last year as now we're hopefully on the other side of this? Oh, goodness. I think that's like a whole, I mean, that's, I mean, our whole lives have changed. I mean, I can answer that mm -hmm. question in, yeah, right. in so many different ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I... I, in the beginning, I remember when it, when it started, I felt a lot of hope as a pastor because I realized that people were, their lives, even though this was terrible thing was happening, we had so much fear and so much potential of people dying and people did die and that was terrible. But, but the sense of like uh, a greater spiritual longing and awareness that was going on in each of our lives, I really noticed that as a pastor, one of my own spiritual ministry practices I do is I have a email that I send out every Sunday called word of the week where I pick just one word and I, I, you know, explain on the definition and, and how that might um, encourage the readers throughout the week. And I was writing those just related to the pandemic. And I recently went back and read some of the words um, that I wrote, you know, during the height of it, March, April, May, <laughs> June. And I could, I could feel in those writings, you know, a sense of, of panic and a sense of grief, but also a sense of hope because mm -hmm. we were having to get serious again about things that were really important in our lives. Like all the extra stuff of like, well, my kids got to be in this class or I got to, we have to plan this vacation or, you know, we have to plan this birthday party, like all of that stopped. And we were just kind of doing life at a very basic level. And um, I think some even though it was hard, I think some beautiful things yeah. um, did come out of that. Um, and I saw in my church, uh, we got closer together because we were doing all these Zoom things. You know, I, I would have people that wouldn't come to, you know, in-person Bible studies or activities just because in Washington, D.C., where my church was, life is hard and traffic is terrible if you've been there. <laughs> right. You know, like, I want to come, but I'm stuck in traffic. But we, you know, sure. there's not much of an excuse when there's Zoom. And, you know, we have these Wednesday night kind of just check-ins every week. Mm -hmm. And I really felt like we grew as a community because we were all in it together in a really right. a meaningful way. It's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. And speaking of that, I mean, um, now that we are hopefully coming out of this pandemic mindset and, and things are certainly opening up across this country, at least, um, there seems to be this kind of rush to return to normalcy, whatever that means, especially when the church is concerned. Um, and you're somebody, Elizabeth, that, that uh, you know, I read, I, I appreciate your insights and your thoughts on what's going on within Christianity, within the trends uh, of the church. Uh, but it seems like in this rush to normalcy with everything back uh, opening back up, it seems like we're missing out on an opportunity for significant transformation. After everything that has happened this last year, it seems like the church should have, have transformed to be more prophetic in their voice, to speak into some of the issues that you're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about those here in just a second uh, in, in the book. Do you think that it seems as though 
the church is rushing too quickly to get back to the way things were pre-pandemic, and we're losing an opportunity for real transformation to do something new and robust coming out of the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. I I agree. Um, We... uh, there is a great opportunity for all of us who care about good things going on in the church, larger spiritual community that we're all a part of. Uh, but I see so many of my colleagues um, who are pastors being very weary right now because mm-hmm. they have been through mm-hmm. so much of just managing all of the personalities and expectations. You know, we've all seen and experienced this pandemic in a different way in terms of what our comfort level is with masks, with vaccines, with social distancing. We've all been affected. Some of us have had family members that have died. Some churches have really lost pillars from this, um, from this pandemic that are never coming back. And, and I, I just feel like so many um, folks are taking out some of that pain and that grief and that loss on their pastors because pastors have had to make some really difficult decisions, whether to, you know, to open when people wanted it to be closed or closed when they wanted the church to be open or to do an online program or not to do an online program or um, to keep certain ministries or not keep certain ministries. And so I just think this is a time when we need to extend to one another more grace um, because we're all coming out of a season of trauma. I mean, when we lived through months and days where we didn't know, you know, when we're going to see our loved ones again and if we were going to get sick or when was a vaccine coming and when were we going to get it or what was our place in the line? (laughs) You know, it's been a collective experience of trauma and you know, we want to do good things coming out of this. We want to be more innovative and effective, but I think just to take a moment and to have a pause and to acknowledge that we've all been through something really intense um, would help us as we begin to move into the new thing. And see, that's exactly why I read and appreciate everything you write. So thank you for that. <laughs> so in addition to trying to keep your, your child clean and schooled, this past <laughs> yeah. Um, you also wrote a book. So like, did you actually write it during the pandemic? No, uh, no, that would have never happened. I'm no okay. Way. I was like, man, you needed to class and concentration. Oh, no. See, I can tell you the inside story, which is I, I wrote it the summer of 2019 and it was supposed to come out, um, last summer, August of 2020. And I was getting the big round of edits right in March. And I literally, I like, I remember seeing them on my computer and like crying (laughs) saying, okay, I will give you any advance money you gave me back. I'm tired. I cannot do this. And I'm such a task completer. And if you tell me, you know, to be there, I will be there. I just Mm. couldn't even believe myself that I was telling, you know, this big, exciting thing in my life. No, Mm. but I was like, look, I, I actually said to the editor, I was like, we're in a pandemic. Does do these topics even matter anymore? I, I, I think we're going to be on something else, another journey. And, and maybe I, this book just doesn't need to be in the world. But they were really kind at Upper Room, my publisher, and said, of course, no, just chill. We understand <laughs> you're going through a lot of things. Let's delay it a couple months. Let the world calm down a bit. And um, I got childcare back last fall. Thanks be to the Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was Bless his holy to- name. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. The so revival broke out across the land mm-hmm. among parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so the here we are. Um, I call it a COVID-delayed book, but I think 
uh, in many ways, brave churches coming out at just the right time. Because, yes, uh, agree. Uh, we have we so need brave much. churches. I know we do yes. in this new world. We we need you know what if we began to think about our 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 ministry and not in the ways of like well you know we've always done this program or we've always mm-hmm. had this um, this type of ministry. What if we began talking about real life? Yes, um, that's something that I think has a power to make our communities more bold, more effective, and more um, welcoming to those in yeah. whom most need church right now. Yeah. In fact, Autumn told a quote uh, from the book that I mean, you just mentioned. So uh, Autumn, that quote I thought was great that you pulled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you grew up in a pretty typical church experience. You're yeah, right. Absolutely. We talked about God, Jesus, and the Bible. We talked about Christmas pageants, bake sales, and chili suppers. We talked about outreach campaigns, volunteer missions, and Sunday school, but we never talked about real life. We never talked about the part of life that made us sad, scared, angry, and ashamed. Why doesn't the church talk about these raw and honest emotions? Well, you just read one of my favorite parts of the book, and that's really uh, sums it up why um, I wrote Brave Church, is because... Uh, I grew up in a, a good little Southern Baptist church in um, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, you know, we were, it was good people doing with good intentions, trying to do the right thing, trying to love God, trying to love Jesus, trying to love their neighbor. But the thing that I always noticed about um, the congregation that formed me and shaped me was that there were so many times when things happened that we just didn't even mention, like the youth minister got divorced and they fired him, or the mm-hmm. someone in the youth group had um, an eating disorder and went away and we never addressed it, or someone was struggling with depression and no one would ever say that word, depression. Mm-hmm. And I I have always thought that the, the gospel, if it's going to be good news, it can't be just good news to, you know, a life beyond, which... Um, is great, but it has to be good news for the world in which we're living in right now. And it has to be good news for all of us, not just parts of us. And um, I I think we have such a hard time talking about um, topics that I write about in Brave Church, such as infertility, miscarriage, mental health, racism, sexuality, because we're afraid. And also because there's so much shame that um, we've put on these topics just because we don't have a tradition of talking about them. Mm-hmm. And, and you chose, and that's the, it's great leading to my next question because those, I mean, the topics you chose to write about in a uh, brave church, I mean, they're really weighty. Um, and so I know that, uh, especially working through the material, uh, some of them were very personal to you. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you personally select these specific topics to write about in the book? Well, um, that I, I, I thought that they were some of the most relevant um, topics that related to things that I had seen and experienced that were just not talked about. Um, and the order of the book is very intentional. I start with the first topic is infertility and miscarriage. The statistics say that one in eight couples in America will struggle with infertility and 10 to 15% of pregnancies will end in miscarriage. I think that everybody knows somebody that's either been through it or going through it right now. And so that's how I started because I thought let's, you know, when you're in a group and the whole intention of brave church is this is not just, let's just start talking, but let's have some intentionality around it. Let's covenant together in a different kind of way. So that we're able to go deeper with one another. 
I thought, well, that's a great way to start the book. And the, the next, um, the next topic is mental illness. Um, so many of us have experienced that beyond just, you know, feeling blue one day or needing, you know, a mental break. We know people for whom mental illness in all its different forms um, has um, shaped their life. I talk about domestic violence because I think we do a lot of damage in the church with our theology around women and around um, forgiveness that keeps uh, those who are in difficult situations of family, um, not talking about their pain and continuing to suffer. Um, the, the theological um, teachings around, um, in particular, um, patriarchy <laughs> um, and, and who's in leadership in churches, um, I thought was really important to bring forth to light on that topic. And then racism. You know, one interesting thing about the racism chapter is I was telling you I wrote the book in 2019, the first draft, well, it completely got rewritten in 2020 right. through the summer of, um, of Black Lives Matter and of the murder of George Floyd. And, and one cool thing about the book is that in each chapter, I'm going to point you to two innovative ministries or churches that are doing something cool in that area. And so what I actually did is I went back to the two churches that I featured in the racism chapter, one was a predominantly white church and another was a um, African-American church. And I asked them, how were they responding to the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. movement, which was really cool to, to see their witness in action in this current time. And then sexuality, how could you write a book about um, being brave or talking about tough topics if you don't mention that one? Because we've seen it divide, 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 divide um, with such um, strong opinions throughout um, Christian denominations. So yeah. that's, that's well, it, it was a great choice of topics. And I think, like I said, uh, every one of them are extremely important and germane to what's going on in culture today. So well done in selecting those. Well, and I love you. that it's, it's not brave pastor. No, mm. no, no, no. It's, it's not brave Sunday school teacher. No. It's brave church. Like we I, have to be brave together because I, you know, Mitch and I both have, I'm sure you do too. We have friends who are in leadership at churches who are getting pretty roughed up over their statements about, you know, race and sexuality and all of these things that have been on fire since right. summer of 2020. And so I think that's such an important thing to say that like, it takes all of us together. It does. And, and I want to tell you this, I mean, this book is not what Elizabeth Hagen thinks on all these topics. I worked really hard to not make it um, about me because I believe in like what you're saying um, of the church coming together and holding intention when we have different ideas and different experiences. And I intentionally pulled sources as I was talking through and teaching on these topics from a variety of different theological spectrums. I mean, um, because I didn't want someone to think that I was writing a manifesto that then would keep them from away from engaging in the conversation. Yeah. You know, as a pastor, the thing that I always feel so happy about whenever I'm leading a small group or any type of session is when people are in the same room and they start sharing with one another. I mean, I may have a plan and an agenda, like what I want to see happen, but if they are present and talking with one another and sharing things that are real going on in their lives, I'm like, I've won. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, and that's really my hope for Brave Church is that people be in the same room, intentionally commit to, to doing this work together and just listen. Um, yeah. 
And speaking of that, you offer some rules for productive and healthy conversations for the Brave Church. Um, so without giving away everything, because we want people to buy the book, uh, what, can you speak a little bit, like what rule is more essential for these significant conversations to be productive? Well, here's one of my favorite ones. Um, you know, I think a lot of times in churches, we say a lot about, well, let's just agree to disagree. I mean, we've all heard that. Oh, that yeah, that was brilliant. Let's not that. get political. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, on some of these issues, I'm not going to agree to disagree with you on this. Because <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I have a good friend who said, you know, agree to disagree is just code for I like you too much to argue with you. Mm. Isn't that true? Mm. Yes. Um, and um, the first um, Brave Space rule says this, that we will accept conflict and commit to the way of kindness. Yeah. I think we have this idea that um, if we're going to um, talk about anything in a faith context that we have to agree or that we, we have to come at it from the same perspective. But I think conflict is really important um, because that's how we hear each other. Um, mm -hmm. it, and it's how we handle it, committing to the way of kindness that's important. You know, I've had colleagues that have said to me, you know, I don't know why you said that in this meeting, or have you looked at it this way? Or, or I felt hurt when you offered the prayer in this way. And those are moments of real learning. I mean, I'm sure you've had those in your lives as well. Yes. And someone has said something very direct to you and you feel terrible in the moment, but you are so thankful in the long run because you learn about someone's experience at a deep yeah. level and it, yeah. and it changes things. Sorry, you talk in the chapter, um, uh, like continuing, continue to listen. It's toward the end, I think. Are still listening? I want to get the title. Yeah, let's keep yeah. talking. Yeah, keep talking. Yes. Yeah. But you talk about a friend who um, flies frequently, or did I guess to India doing humanitarian work, mm -hmm. and you said to her, I think her, you said to her, like, wouldn't it be great if we could just basically teleport and you know be there so quickly? And right. she, I love what she said that she enjoys the time that it takes because it gives her time to sort of recenter herself and. I think that's sort of what this time has been. Um, this, you know, I feel like the word liminal space started like popping like popcorn right around the time that the quarantine began. Like I'd never heard that word before. And then suddenly every Christian I knew was talking about liminal space. Mm -hmm. And I think you even mentioned it in the chapter, but that's, that's what this time has given us right, to sort right. of recenter and to take a minute and to strip away all those distractions. And so everything that you're saying is so important. And when we're in, I, I know me personally, like from 2016 to 2020, like I was on fire, you know, like I, I, it was hard for me to listen to what people were saying because I was just agog at really at what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so, but now I do feel like I can have those conversations with people and not in a agree to disagree kind of way, but to have those meaningful things have scabbed over a bit, if that makes yeah. sense. And that's what I loved about that chapter that you wrote. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I, I think we do need that in between time. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it would be great. Um, I, um, that song I, I play all the time. It was popular a couple of years ago. Wake me up when it's all over, you know? Um, uh, anyway, I, I think about that. Sometimes I just want to be woken up when all this craziness is over. And when we're on a, on a, a more consistent plane of, of not so much conflict in our country, but I think to be in the tension and to be in the conflict is really our calling as Christians and to bring hope to those for whom have felt like their pain has been ignored in the church. Their pain has not been validated um, just think about all those who have experienced racism as a result. I mean, I know that this is something you're passionate about um, as well, but 
racism as a result of the way that we formed our churches. And if we can't talk about that and name it for what it is, how in the world can we ever move on from it? So, um, yeah, we, we need this in between time to do some really important um, work amongst ourselves. What I really like about what you're advocating for, not only with this book, Elizabeth, but with, with what you've done in your career, um, is that you are really advocating for a genuine, authentic, transparent, uh, honest faith, and, and also a church, a transparent church, to be open to just accepting ourselves with all of our flaws, all of our history. Uh, all of our downfalls so that we can make a better community moving forward that we, and, you know, the book is dealing with some very vulnerable issues. Uh, I know, you know, in, in your previous writings, as well as this one, you have been very vulnerable and telling your own stories um, to me. And certainly feel free to disagree with me. It seems as though you are, saying if the church really wants to be relevant for the future and to be able to minister on a larger, broader spectrum, then we have to let the people see that we are struggling through life just like they are. We have made mistakes just like the rest of the world, but we want to do this together and get and, and be better as we strive towards you know following the words of Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you said this is not great pastor. This is great church. But I think it does start with the leadership. You know, if you see your leader uh, vulnerably talking about things, then you're going to feel like, well, OK, maybe it's OK for me, too. You know, it takes I mean, what is that? Pass it on. Takes a spark to get the fire going. You know, um, it's so true. Um, one statistic that I encountered um, that was a part of the mental health, uh, mental illness chapter. Uh, was a study that was done by Lifeway um, several years ago, and it was about mental illness. And it said that 94% of pastors that they surveyed um, knew that there was someone in their church that was struggling with mental health or mental illness, but only 12% of them said they'd ever uttered that from the pulpit or, or talked about it openly. And that, I remember the day that I read that, and I just like was caught in my tracks, just like with my jaw dropped, like, like Houston, we have a problem. Like this is really bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, when we know that people in our pews are suffering, we know that they are dealing with experiences that make them feel isolated and alone and lost. And we don't even name um, what is going on and how this is affecting not only individuals, but those who love them. Um, we, we have to do better. And, um, you know, it is, it is risky. And, you know, some people have said to me when they know about this book coming out, well, how, don't you know, this is kind of like putting you in a category of like the girl who talks about things that nobody wants to talk about. Like, how are you ever going to fit in <laughs> in mainstream church? I'm like, well, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I don't want to fit in. Maybe, maybe the people that, um, that need the good news the most are those for whom have felt left out um, by our traditional church practices and maybe in running to them and helping them know that they're seen and loved, um, that the good news comes just a little bit more into our world. And, um, and that's, 
that's what gets me excited about church, you know? I mean, and that's the kind of church I want to go to where I feel like I don't have to pretend when I show up that I can be sad because something really bad happened to me this week, or I can be angry because there's so much injustice in this world, or I can be frustrated because, you know, someone in my family made a really terrible life choice again. Um, I, I, I want to, to believe that that's possible. And um, so that's why I wrote Brave Church. Well, the book is Brave Church, Tackling Tough Topics Together. You can find where you can purchase the book at elizabethhagen.com forward slash Brave Church. Reverend Hagen, thank you so much for being on Good Faith Weekly. It was a delight to visit with you. Thank you so much for having me. Mitch, before we let her go. Well, I, yeah, um, I, was about to, I was about to open the door for you. Autumn, so. <laughs> you you were really like, it was that part in the church where the pastor closes his Bible and you're like, wait a minute. It's not quite time for that yet. He's going he's gonna to do a sneaky story to us here is what's going to happen. Um, that was my favorite part of church is a little girl. I'm like, yes, it's time for lunch. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then you um, then you then you get the second sermon during the invitation. <laughs> right. They're gonna play just as I am four times. One more time, right? <laughs> our our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything that we've talked about and that you've lived and written about, Elizabeth, what is your more to tell? Well, I believe that brave church's magic comes not just in a person buying the book and reading them themselves, but in getting a brave church group together and committing to do this study um, for anywhere from four to six to seven weeks, however much time you have as a group and, and really digging into it. So this is what I'm offering, and I would love to connect with your listeners about this. This fall, I'm starting a cohort of brave church, brave churches who are willing to uh, get a group together and to do this book um, formation curriculum, whatever that looks like in their context. And for those who are part of this fall cohort, uh, I am going to commit to being present with them. Um, on Zoom or whatever way makes the most sense and being a support to their leader. So um, touch with me if that's something that interests you, because I think that doing a group is pretty magical. I taught this uh, at my church as I was writing it as well and um, learned a lot from that experience. So excited about some brave churches getting going this fall. Love that. Love it. Well, Elizabeth, again, thank you so much for being on Good Faith Weekly. We wish you the very best. Try to stay cool down there in that uh, summer southern Georgia heat. I will. Thank you. Elizabeth Hagen, thank you so much for being with us today. To our audience, we want to thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly. And as always, until next week, keep living good faith.